Alright, everybody find your seats. We're getting started. Good evening, Saints. Tonight, we promise we're going to have a victorious evening. We all had the opportunity to celebrate together yesterday and stand in the victory that is Christ. And I haven't given it up in the last 24 hours. I still want the victory that is Christ. We're going to dive into the eternal, all-powerful, and glorious Word of God. Times like these, knowing and doing the will of God has the utmost importance. As if it wasn't before, but now we know how important it is. 1 John 2, 17 says this, The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Come on. Tonight we are going to start by praising the King of Kings for the life of our brother Daniel. Amen. We're going to praise the King of Kings for his life and the word that he so deeply loved. He finished his race doing the will of God, and now he lives forever. Our brother Daniel lives forever because he learned from Monday nights like these. He lives forever because he learned from Wednesday night studies and Sunday morning services along with his personal study. It is the word of God that taught Daniel how to do the will of God, and now he lives forever because of it. Hey, how important is it to pay pay attention to meetings like this? This is where we learn to do the will of God right here. This is where we learn to live forever. He is with us in the room right now in the great cloud of witnesses. He is with us tonight as we dig into the scripture and we find out what God's will is for us so that we may live too. You guys want to do that? Then stand up with us. And we are going to pray to the God of the living as we enter into our study in the Word of God. Mighty God, we thank you for the victorious testimony of our brother Daniel. Lord, we thank you that he stands with you right now. Lord, we thank you that you preserved his life because he was taught how to do the will of God. Lord, we pray that tonight as we enter into your scriptures, you would teach us how to do your will. You would teach us how to gain eternal life for ourselves. You would teach us how to walk a life so victorious like our brother that we may gain an acceptance into your glorious presence. Lord, we love you and we love your word tonight. Open our ears and our hearts to hear what your word has for us. In Jesus' name. Look, we are going to cover chapter 29 tonight. This does not mean that we are done with the book of Chronicles. This is not the end of the book of Chronicles. One book. If you remember, these two books were written as one book, and we are going to treat it as such. Next week, we will be in the second Chronicles, continuing the story. We're going to pick right up where we are going. Before we read, we would like to outline a few concepts that we have been studying in the last 29 chapters of Chronicles. That is going to help us pave a way for what we will be studying in the coming weeks. 
Would you like to hear an overview of what you've gotten in the last 29 uh, chapters? Yes. You want to see some things strung together for you here real quick? Yes. In chapters 1 through 9, that was our first week together. Yeah. We covered the Divrei Ha Yamim, or the words concerning the days. In that study, we covered the intent of the book of Chronicles, the position of the writer Ezra, and the content that the books focused on. You remember how they focused on the Davidic dynasty and the Davidic dynasty alone? That is still important to remember. We also discussed the connectivity of the content from Chronicles to the New Testament book of Matthew. Hey, these chapters 1 through 9, what did they consist of? A lot of genealogies. What does Matthew open up with? It's almost like they were written to flow right into each other. Come on. Chapters 10 through 11. A tale of two houses. Does anybody remember that? Yeah. So we had the reign of Saul. And man, I love Ezra's accounting. Mm-hmm. It was a brief reign. A really brief reign. Like a whole 20-something verses. And then Saul died because of his unfaithfulness. And then it immediately transitions to the point of the story, the pinnacle of all of our lives, the divinic dynasty. Amen. Ezra wanted you to know about when death reigned, but that was not the point of his story. The point of his story was the king that would bring life. In chapter 12, we taught about the army of God. We've been on that theme a lot, haven't we? Oh, yeah. We discovered in that week that David assembled an army, and it was like the army of God. Y'all Come remember on. that? That army assembled around David to make him king, and that army was like God's divisions. They assembled for the sole purpose of handing over the kingdom to the rightful owner of the dynasty, and that was David. Amen. So we have next, 13 through 15, priestly prescription. We learned that David had an issue with the Levites. We had this whole event. Somebody gets struck dead. In the Chronicles account, it was a lot less detailed than things that we've covered in Samuel together. He did not inquire of the written word of God. But he then goes and corrects the issue. He seeks the word of God, and then more than that, the Davidic king begins to instruct the priesthood. He teaches those that are supposed to be ministers of the word how to get it right. The written word of God is always the answer. Whether you feel like you're a qualified priest or not, God makes you one through his spirit and his word. That same son of David has redeemed us and called us to a holy priesthood. Just like David took the Levites of his day and taught them how to do their job well. In chapter 16, we covered a week called David's Tent. We outlined the transitional phase referred to as David's Tent. And we saw that the mobile tabernacle that Moses built transitioned to David's Tent, which would ultimately transition to the permanent temple. Did you guys learn something new in that week? We saw that the time frame that we are in now, the apostles saw this as the David's Tent phase. Right now, the phase that we are in is we are building a permanent temple that is coming from God, just like David was in the process of building that temple. Chapter 17 was on the Davidic dynasty and the promise that God made to David and his house. Now, was it a conditional promise? No. It was an everlasting one. It was an eternal one. It was one that was not with condition. God made a unique promise in the word, much like he did with Abraham, with the house of David, that there is 
no conditions placed upon. David would reign and would reign forever. In chapters 18 through 20, we covered Rephaim. We saw that after David receives his promise, he does what? He goes immediately to war. Hey, when you get a promise from God, what happens right after that? You go to war. David goes to war with the Rephaim. We saw that the Rephaim were the descendants of the Nephilim and that their spirits were damned to wander the earth as restless demons. David, as a type of Messiah, shows his dominion over the Rephaim and teaches us to do the same. Come on now. Chapter 21. We learned about the being behind the curtain. Yeah. It's okay to boo right now. Boo. <laughs> Throughout the Bible, there was opposition. There was adversaries that were constantly opposed in God's plan throughout the word. And yet Satan was never easily identifiable until the cross. Right. We walk through that chronology now. You guys know things that your average churchgoer who's been there for 20 years still fails to understand. Yeah. Simply by taking the word of God from the right direction and not assuming that John Milton's paradise, paradise loft, paradise leaf, however we want to say it, it wasn't good is an acceptable commentary on the word of God when you could just read it yourself. Amen. In chapter 22, we taught the imperishable truth of the gospel. You remember that? Come on. That was the night we did 1 Corinthians 15 as a whole within the chapter of 22. So good. Man, how, how precious has 1 Corinthians 15 been for this body? Man, in this chapter, we saw that God promised that there would be peace on every side during Solomon's reign and that David would have to make that peace through warfare. We saw two separate types of Christ in David and Solomon, his son. We realized that 1 Corinthians 15 followed the same pattern in saying that after Christ establishes peace like David did, he would be all in all and he would reign in peace like Solomon would. Man, that has been essential to this body. 1 Corinthians 15, we learn the entire gospel. So many of us thought we knew the gospel until we see what the gospel consists of. It's not just Jesus dying on the cross and forgiving our sins. It's about actually inheriting an imperishable body and your perishable body being swallowed up in victory and death ceasing on the earth. You receiving a glorified body is the gospel. Man, that we went through 23 and 25. Just to be frank, this is Justin and I's personal favorite. Yep. We had list and list of genealogies and numbers that just looked completely meaningless to the natural eye. And yet we realized that David was establishing his throne in the same way that God's throne was. Wow. This was called heavenly stratagem for that reason. Oh, yeah. And in addition to that, when we saw the numbers of 24,000, we had supervisors, we had Levites, we had priests, we had prophets, we had military divisions. It was clearly a prototype for the fivefold ministry, a reflection of God's government in the heavens upon the earth. We concluded with preparing in the Davidic kingdom prophets and military commanders to work alongside each other. Anybody remember the term military intelligence? Yes. Military intel is prophetic knowledge that is actionable, that is useful for the fight that your church and your body is actively participating in. So what we learned that evening is we don't want prophecies that were made up out of somebody's head or you felt like you discerned it, but do not relate to us because we are at war and we are going to win.
together. So we're going to pray that God would give us vision and insight for our body, our brothers, during our times of need, and strengthen each other. The next week, we covered chapter 26. We titled that lesson, Two War Chests. Man, that evening we discussed progressing from being able to capable to what? Very capable. In addition to that, we noted that there were two treasuries in the house of God. One for tithes, which is required from every man. Every man is able, every man is required to give God what is his. And that is your tithes. One-tenth of what you have belongs to God. It's his. We learned that the other treasury was the supernatural offerings obtained through supernatural faith and conquest. Amen. Anybody still longing in this room for supernatural faith and conquest? Amen. We want to see those supernatural offerings. We have supernatural temples to build. We have supernatural things to do for God in this house. This house is not done with doing supernatural things for the king of kings. And we're going to need supernatural victories to do it. Man, on that note, last week we covered chapter 27 and 28, divisions of the willing and the able. During that evening we learned about Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of heavens, the host of the heavenly armies. And that his armies would be joined by faithful son soldiers who were willing to participate in supernatural faith. And I want to be a part of his army. Hey, have you learned something from the book of Chronicles? You see, as we go through this review, how things kind of line up in a really neat chronological order. You know, some would have said, what book do we do next? I don't know. We should do something relevant like Romans or something like that. But can you see how the Lord has been directing us through a proper understanding of the book of Chronicles? It's incredible to see the insight when you take the time to study the word of God. Learn how to understand the book of Romans. (laughs) Look, that brings us to this week. We're going to cover 1 Chronicles 29. And before we do, we want to have our faithful reader of the scroll, Justice Lentonius Maximus, read the chapter for us. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great, because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God, Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stones and marble. All of these in a large, in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, of gold of ochre, 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls and of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. Yeah, they did. They gave toward the work of the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents for silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Any who had precious stone gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders 
for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Wow. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generally and generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow, without hope. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever. Amen. And keep their hearts loyal to you. Amen. Come on. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build up the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord, your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and the king. The next day they made sacrifices to the Lord and presented burnt offerings to him. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand male lambs, together with their drink offerings and other sacrifices in abundance for all of Israel. They ate and drank with, with great joy in the presence of the Lord that day. Then they acknowledged Solomon, son of David, as king a second time, anointing him before the Lord to be the ruler, and Zadok to be priest. So Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of his father David. He prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. All the officers and mighty men, as well as all of King David's sons, pledged their submission to King Solomon. The Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel, and bestowed on him royal splendor, such as no king over Israel ever had before. David, son of Jesse, was king over all Israel. He ruled over Israel 40 years, seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. Mm. His son Solomon succeeded him as king. As for the events of King David's reign, from the beginning to the end, they are written in the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer, together with the details of his reign and power and the circumstances that surround him and Israel and the kingdoms of all the other lands. Come on, man. Brother Latonius, I'm going to give you a short breather. I'm going to read verse 1, and then you're going to take over from there while you take a breath. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great, because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord. 
Saints, this is one of the last times that David is going to speak to the people. We're, we're going to conclude his interaction with the people that God called him to shepherd. And what he wants everybody to know is that there's something weighty going on here. He makes an honest assessment about his son Solomon, which was not demeaning. It's a father helping his son understand where he is lacking so that he can succeed. Can a disciple in the house of God say amen to that? Amen. I am thankful for the fathers we have in this house. As a father, he knew something about the Lord and how great this task really was and how really hard it was going to be to complete. He wanted everyone, including his son, to know the weight, the heaviness that had to be carried. We are speaking about something that has been David's sole focus in life up to this point. Pastor Matthew, have you ever entrusted a task to someone and you told them to take it seriously, but it didn't seem to really quite sink in on them how serious you meant it? Of course. (laughs) David seems like a father trying to make the point to his teenage son. Hey, no, I want you to take care of this. Of course, Dad, I will. No, I want you to ensure this. The gravity of this is beginning to set on his son as well as all of the people as the aged king is speaking these words. Would you guys like to see some scriptures on the subject of building God's house? In yeah. the world? Let's hand out a few passages. Who wants to read? AJ, yeah. would you get Isaiah 66, verse 1? Then, Rob, you're going to get Psalm 50, verse 9 through 12. And then uh, you're going to be interrupted, and you're going to read 13 through 15 after that. Nick Rosales, if you would get Matthew 3, 9... Caleb, you're going to get 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11, and then we'll pick up from there. Look, you can hear in David's tone. He knows his son is young and inexperienced, and he says here that the task is great. You have to picture this task that his son is about to embark on. This is something that has been prophesied no less than 50 times up until this point that God was going to do this. This was, the the mobile tabernacle was descriptive in such detail that it takes more chapters than the entire creation of the world and the building of this temple. That mobile tabernacle is going to get replaced by this temple. And this task was so great. Now, he's doing this for God. And there's something about God that you have to understand before you can realize how how great this task is. Many of us want to build something for the Lord, right? Yes. And yet you don't realize how precious, it is, how precious it is that you get to build something for the Lord. So, true. so we're going to look into this and we're going to see exactly what's going on here. Who's got Isaiah 66.1? That's AJ. Hey, she read that all by herself, y'all. No help from Nazi, no help from Nick. Read that all. She is reading the word of God. Hey, look, this is not just a quaint, charismatic song. True. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. You guys remember that? No. No? Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) Been trying to forget it, brother. 
I wasn't even born again when I heard that, and I still remember it. Look, this isn't just a quaint song. This is God saying that literally the heavens are his throne. And he rests his feet on the earth. That's where he puts his feet. And then the question is, where's the house you're going to build for me? If I reign in heaven and it's my throne and I literally rest my feet on the earth, what do you think you are possibly going to do for me? Where is the house you will build for me? God dwells in the highest heavens, and yet they were about to build a house for his name to dwell on. Now, don't let this escape your thoughts. God commanded that they build this house. And yet there is a certain level with God that he will look right at you and he'll say, hey, if I needed something, I wouldn't ask you to do it. I've got angels at my disposal. Wow. Who's got Psalm 50, verse 9 through 15? I, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine. <laughs> and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains. And the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Look, God's got a ranch that's bigger than the King Ranch. He's got cattle on a thousand hills. You may think you're going to offer a bull to sacrifice to the Lord, but really he doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. If he needed something from you, I'm sure he, he has servants that can bring him things if he actually needed anything. Look, he's saying here that he doesn't need anything. That's an interesting thought because we oftentimes think, man, I am doing this for the Lord. I'm doing this great thing. And yet... He really doesn't need you to do it. He is God overall. He owns everything. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need you to build a house for him. And he doesn't need you. You came thinking tonight that, man, God needs me to fill some sort of function in the body. Well, I assure you, God can raise up somebody to perform that function. He doesn't quite need you as much as you think he needs you. He chooses you to do it because he delights in his service. Keep going through 13 and 15. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. So the honest truth is, is that he doesn't need you to sacrifice a bull. But what he does delight in you doing is making offerings to him, fulfilling your vows, calling upon him in the day of trouble. And he delights in delivering you. And you honoring him. God doesn't need you to do anything, but he delights in using you for his purposes. Who's got Matthew 3, verse 9 through 10? I do. Do not think you can say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Come on, saints. This is one of those scriptures that we've heard a thousand times, but we need to grasp what it actually means. If he's speaking to the sons of Abraham, And Romans 11 is to be believed, and it is. Those who can be more easily grafted in than you and I can. And he says, to them, I can raise up for myself sons of Abraham from these stones. Saints, God does not need you. God does not need you to form some kind of special role or special purpose. I assure you, these pastors do not need your special charisma that you're just (laughs) waiting to impart to the church. It is a privilege for us to participate in the work of God. You are privileged to participate in it. The work is not privileged to have you. This does not work in both directions. God's work is sacred. 
We are a people of unclean lips that are being purified as we go following our Father. When we understand that the original people that had the promise were able to be replaced, we need to realize along with that the weight and the honor and the glory of being used by God so that we may participate in the work. It's also a strong warning anytime any of us are feeling like uh, just taking a couple weeks off, throwing it off, Uh setting your keys down for a little while. (laughs) Don Potter song, sorry. God's going to roll on a roll tonight. You set your keys down. You set the keys of your calling down, and God will have somebody else pick them up and drive that car off. Hey, who's got 1 Corinthians 3.10? 3.10 through 11. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Caleb, what translation are you reading out of? Skilled, masterful. I like that. By the grace God has given me. Saints, we've got to continue to redefine grace. Grace is part of your cleansing into a sinless human being. It's teaching you to say no to ungodliness. But first and foremost, it's power. It is power that did not originate in you. It is not from you. It is not through you. It is grace that has been given unto you to be able to lay a foundation skillfully, masterfully, as an expert builder. When we are building on the house of God, there is a kind of weight that ought to rest upon us. We're not putting together a doghouse. We're not making something that is our own custom home in our image. We are building something that is a reflection of the heavens and must match it. See, David wanted his son to know that it is by grace that Solomon has been chosen. That his son was not chosen out of all of them because he was the most perfect. It was by the grace of God that he was elected to do this just like the Apostle Paul. David knew that it was grace to be able to build something great for the Lord. If it wasn't for him, you would have nothing to show for it. Our good friend entered into eternity by the grace of God. That grace of God was not just absolving him from life and letting him enter into eternity. It was grace that allowed him to build something on this earth. And his wife and children are proof of it. We should be careful how we build because we do not get the opportunity to do this again and again. You've been given one house and one foundation to build on. on. We are building the temple of God through the whole gospel. Somebody say whole gospel. 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 We cannot lay any other foundation. We can't lay a partial one. We can't lay down the parts that we like. We are laying down the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. The way in which that we receive the plans that David gave to Solomon is through discipleship. It is through training. It is through the word of God. David took great pains. The body that is around you has taken great pains to ensure that those plans, that that whole word of God is available for this great task that you have been called to. Now we must build carefully upon it. He says that he's young, that he's in an experience. It's expected when you get first born again, whether you're 20 or 70, that you're stupid. But you're not supposed to stay stupid. We are growing into those that are master builders that know how to resurrect a temple for the living God. Saints, I'm ashamed many times of the way that I think or how far I've deviated from the plans. You know, that same grace of God that is at work in me teaches me to say no and come right back to the plan of God. Tonight, we want to become a little sharper, a little more aware of what the building plans God has already given us are so that we might carry it out with diligence. 
Clinton, will you pick back up in verse 2 and read on through 4 for us? With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the onyx, turquoise stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble. All of these in large quantities. Besides, my, besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. He gives us what? Personal treasures. So what he's talking about in verse 2, all the way to verse 3, with all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God, what resources were those? That was the plunder that he raised up men and he taught them how to go take. That was everything that he devoted in the previous chapters. And then he says in verse 3, besides in my devotion to the temple, what was that devotion? Raising up other men to go get plunder. I now give my personal Personal treasures. Keep going, Linton. I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 pounds of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 pounds of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the building. You got it. Look, David taught his men how to plunder. We saw that in the last weeks. David taught his men how to plunder, and that was his supernatural victories resulting in supernatural offerings. Come on. Now he is doing something so much greater than that. He devoted all of that plunder, but now he is giving personally. Now you see the Davidic king making a personal sacrifice for the building of the temple. Can you see some themes in that? Oh, yeah. Who else? that was a Davidic son, gave a personal sacrifice for the building of the temple. Jesus didn't just give your plunder over to the building of the temple. Jesus gave precious things, and he gave it personally. He paid a personal sacrifice, and that was very precious. Hey, look how much he gave. This is 3,000 talents of gold. Did the math for you. That's 279,000 pounds of gold that he gave. He gave, that's 140 tons, and by today's, uh, by today's estimate, that is worth about $7,954,848,000. That is what the Davidic king gave personally. Personally. <laughs> And we did the weight of all that gold. You know how much it weighs, according to Google? About 20 Tyrannosaurus Rexes. <laughs> how in the world that they, they got that, I have no idea, but that's what they said. You've seen Jurassic Park, right? Yeah. You can imagine how much that is. He then gave 7,000 talents of silver. That's 651,000 pounds. 325 tons of silver. And apparently silver is worth a whole lot less than gold, but it's still 187 million dollars that's a lot of money isn't it and that weight there is about three and a half boeing jets of silver so we have all of that value at a combined value this is eight billion a hundred and forty two million three hundred and thirty six thousand dollars of supernatural offering that the davidic king contributed personally 
Man, you think the cross was an achievement, right? A personal supernatural victory that the Davidic king gave. Hey, we looked at that. You guys are aware of Fort Knox, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, not Fort Knox today. I mean, back like in the 90s okay. when there was actually things in it. <laughs> Fort Knox had an estimated $6 billion of gold in their vault. Oh, wow. What David gave personally was worth more that is kept in the United States military vaults. I want to share a scripture with you on that theme. And that, again, is in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 17. It says, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light, it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Hey, David personally gave a tremendous amount for the building of God's temple. He didn't give anything worthless, did he? He paid full price. It's just like Jesus Christ didn't give anything worthless. He paid full price. He spilt his own divine, precious blood. For you, the Davidic son did not give anything worthless. He paid full price. He gave a tremendous amount. But look, sometimes we're tempted to say, well, Jesus, Jesus paid a tremendous price and he paid it so that I can live life to the fullest. And that means for me that I'm going to live the best life I can on this earth now. And I'm not going to do anything further. Look, I want to tell you that the wood, hay and stubble that we have all around us is our retirements, our corporate achievements, and our academic accomplishments. Those things are wood, hay, and stubble, and those will be burned up forever. Look, when we're experiencing times that we're experiencing now, can you see how important it is to build with costly stones? That day may be coming where your work might have to pass through fire quicker than you know it. Let us not build with silly little trite accomplishments like retirement accounts and things like that. Those things are earthly pursuits that will never build anything for God's glory. You want to know what the gold, silver, and costly stones are? Those are the deeds that are done in supernatural and sacrificial faith. Those are the deeds that you do out of your weakness. You remember the message zero faith? Man, hitting that bank account to zero and then giving more. That is building with gold, silver, and costly stones. That is how you build a house. That is how you build a temple. That is how you build a household. You, you build with gold, silver, and costly stones, and you know who watches that? Your sons. See, David did that, and you're going to see a response. If David would have given, given wood, hay, and stubble, what do you think the people would have given? They would have given the same thing that their king gave. But because the king sacrifices so precious things, don't you think that you should too? Man, I kind of think that because Jesus sacrificed it, Everything for us, we ought to lay everything down on the line for him and teach our sons to do the same. David had a heart for the Lord and wanted to give him something that was precious. Hey, we just read a couple scriptures where God said, if I needed anything, I would not ask you. Now, how important is it when God actually does ask you? Man, not only when God asks you, but he gives you the ability to give it. 
That ought to engender a response to where you want to lay down everything you have for him. Because he is actually asking you. He could ask anybody else, but he's giving you the opportunity to get in the boat with him. Amen? Amen. Hey, Linton, would you pick up in verse 5? And 6. And 6. For the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? All right, pause for just a moment. So this king has made this precious sacrifice, and then he turns, and you already know he's addressing his son and the people, demonstrating for us how to lay down our lives. He turns and looks at the people and says, now, now that I paid this cost, who is willing to consecrate himself to the Lord? Saints, we've seen amazing, beautiful, precious costs paid. You can feel the spirit of the God in the room asking who is willing to consecrate yeah. yourself. Now that you've seen it done, are you willing to do the same? Oh, yeah. Brother Linton, read verse 6 for us. Then the leaders of, all, of the families, the officers of the, of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work, gave willingly. Come on. I'm on, man. Their response to what they saw in the Davidic son was to give willingly. Saints, it's one thing in theory to know you may have to sacrifice, that you may lose loved ones, that your wife may not make it if you're going to accomplish what God called you to. It's another to see someone else do it and have to stare it in the face and still believe and understand what God had called you to and be ready, be willing. Saints, God does not love a begrudging heart. He loves the willing soul. He loves those that are willing. Yeah. After gave David gave from his personal war chest. He gave the people grace. He gave them an opportunity. He gave them a holy honor. The ability to consecrate themselves to the work. Note that the consecration was not a quick prayer at an altar. It was not a devotional done alone. It was not a repentance session that was behind closed doors. He asked them the morning before they start the work. He asked them and expected them to immediately run. This is much like Jesus calling his disciples. Much like the time Jesus called you originally, but we're getting a chance to make do on our promise. David asked them to consecrate themselves and they responded by acting, just like in Acts 2. We want to take the time to notice that these men were not just any random people. Their response was very special. They were men who are attached to David for a very, very specific reason. Justin, would you read 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 2 to us? Hey, before I do that, does anybody want to guess where these officials come from? No? Okay. Let's read 1 Samuel 22, verse 1 through 2. And then somebody read, JJ, you read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27. Cody, if you get Acts 4, 13 through 14, and we're going to pick up on... And build some of these themes. 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 2. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented. Hold on, did you say they were in debt? All those who were distressed in debt or discontented, gathered around him, and he became their leader. 
about 400 men were with him. Look, the men who are now leaders and officials started as men who were in debt. What are they doing in this passage? They're about to give willingly and they started in debt. They started with the king of kings owing something to creditors, owing something to everyone around them. They were distressed and discontented. And he made them into something that when he demonstrated sacrifice, they would respond after him. Man, this is so much like our king and beloved savior, Jesus Christ. Pause for a minute. Some of you are thinking through this. And you're saying, oh, how do you know those officials are the same one from the cave of Abdullah? Go back and read chapter 27 again and look at where each of the tribes and groupings come from. It's the people who came to him at the cave. There is not one that was a leader in his 12 months of the year over a division of 24,000 that did not come to him here. Come on, you men. You understand why those who came to him in a cave when they were distressed and in debt but stuck with him inherited all and had the opportunity to give something supernatural. You have an opportunity today, regardless of whether you're in distress, in debt, or discontent, if you run to the king of kings, he will not leave you there. Who's got 1 Corinthians 1, 26-27? Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Now, Duda was laughing at me while we were studying because he says I put this scripture in almost every one of my messages. <laughs> the truth is, is that I like it so much. It's because that's what I came from. That's who I was. Nothing noble, shameful, pitiful, foolish. And yet God took me and he gave a person like me an opportunity to give to him. Remember what we shared earlier. He doesn't need anything. But what he does is raises up men who have nothing to give and then gives them the ability to give to him. Man, that is precious. Look, all come to Jesus with nothing to give or offer. If you think you came into Jesus because, you know, I was just searching for Jesus and then one day I found him, you are wrong. Dead wrong. You came to him with nothing to offer. You came to him pitiful, naked, blind, dead, and needing to be raised up. You were searching for God like a, like a criminal looks for a policeman. You were running. And he found you, cleaned you up, and gave you an opportunity to do something for him. Hey, that's better than we realize. You were looking for him, all right. You just weren't actually trying to find him. When we actually reflect on our time prior to him, we knew about him in some kind of distant realm. We kept an eye out for him. But he grabbed us by the hair, jerked us around, and showed us how to walk as a son in this house. Come on. I want to walk in that full sonship. In good spirit with my brother, we put Acts 4.13 next, which is one of my favorite scriptures. Who's got it? All right, pause before 14 for a minute. So we're speaking about men that are unschooled. Listen, we don't need to take a poll in here. I know the vast majority of you have not been to seminary. What's a poll? (laughs) Think about this. The men who led his armies, that were his officials, that maybe even would later be on 12 foundations of the Davidic son 
and David that were originally distressed, in debt, ordinary, unschooled, manual labor people (laughs) were the ones that he chose to set above everyone. And he gave them the opportunity to pay something that they never could on their own. Man, I love David. And as a consequence, there is no way to look at the Davidic son any differently. They are a shadow of each other. That one that was preparing the way. Those that were the refuse of the earth. They were ordinary. They were unschooled. Were the ones that were set in the highest position in the kingdom because they sacrificed willingly and didn't give up. Come on. Can anybody in the room take a deep breath over that? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, the world cannot take that from you. Enough despair, enough beatings, enough hardship cannot take that from you. What he has given you, given enough time, enough sacrifice, enough devotion, will set you above the rest even in the kingdom of God. I want to be like his men that came to him at the cave of Dulep. Not those that came to him at the palace. Praise God you came to him anywhere that you could. But let's not waste any time in building the house that we are called to. Now, in answer to the men that did not like that they were unschooled, did not like that they were once in debt, did not like that we were foolish, read verse 14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Saints, we are surrounded by people that love and mostly hate this church, that love and mostly hate you. They have a strong divide and a pole. There is polarity. There is no way for them to stay in the middle when you're actually operating like the Davidic son or his men or his disciples or his sons. But the proof that this house is loved by God, that it is built by God, is that his supernatural work, his building project, his healing, his restoration has never stopped. Despite any critics, they can say what they would like. They can write letters, they can slander, they can get together and try to harm us. Our God's hand will not let them succeed. Come on. You need to develop a Holy Ghost confidence tonight. It's the furthest thing from staying in the mully grubs or just trying to shake it off. You are untouchable. They kill you, you're immediately in glory. And up to that point, all you're going to do is keep stealing from them and destroying the devil's kingdom. (laughs) Unschooled, ordinary, yeah. And I was once a liar. And I was once a fisherman. And I had so many other things you have failed to mention. Yeah. But you know what? I have been with Jesus. Yeah. That is enough. Look, they were astonished at how much these men had to give despite where they came from. That's what the astonishment was. Is they were looking and seeing how much these men had to give. And they saw that they were once in debt. And they realized they had been with the Davidic son. When you come to the Davidic king, you are nothing at all. But he makes you able to sacrifice. He equips you to be capable at laying down your life. And he empowers you to be very capable at denying self to see his temple built. Come on. Man, let's not let anybody say, well, I just have nothing to give. I don't have anything to offer the Lord. Well, yes, that's true. But he makes you into somebody who has something to give. That is faith in him. That he will make you into someone who has something to offer. Lenten verse 7 and 8 for us. They gave forth the work of the temple of God. 5,000 talents and 10,000 dares of gold. 10,000 talents of silver. 18,000 talents of bronze. And 100,000 talents of iron. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord. In the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. 
Oh, yeah, it's my turn to share. I just want to see if you caught that for a second. <laughs> Look, these men were disciples of David. They saw the sacrifices of David. They saw the supernatural plunder that he enabled them to get. David taught them how to slay tens of thousands. And as a result of David's discipleship over them, they were able to contribute. The Davidic king went first in offering from his personal treasury. You guys following that? You picking up what we're laying down? The Davidic king went first in offering from his personal treasury. Just like Jesus went first in personally sacrificing himself. In the response to consecrate themselves, they did what? They gave in return to David's giving. They saw the the giving of their leader, and their response was, Hey, we're not going to let our disciple out out give us. We're going to give too. And you want to know how much they gave? Well, let's look at their response to David's sacrifice. You guys want to see that? Do we have that on a slide? Nope. I'll read it for you. It's right there in the text. <laughs> David gave 3,000 talents of gold. How much did they give? Oh, five. They give 5,000 and some change. Mm. He gave 7,000 talents of silver, and they gave oh, 10,000. They also gave 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron, and precious stones as well. Oh. Look, they not only saw their leader, They not only saw the great captain of their faith give, and they just decided to match the bet. They decided to take the bet and raise it and add to it. Are you following this? They not only gave in response, they saw the sacrifice of the king, and they gave more than what the king did. They gave more. Look, I want to read to you John 14, verse 12 through 13. But I got to tell you, There are people in this room that God has called to give more than what he's already given you. God has called you to do greater things than he did. You say, oh, well, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. How can I give more than that? Well, the word says that you will give more than that. You will not only give your life, but you will do greater things than the Davidic son did. Look at John 14, 12. Just verse 12. And I'm going to hand out Colossians 1, 24 for someone to read. Nolan. Actually, I'm going to call an audible. I want to read it. I okay. love you, Nolan. He's going to read that one. And then, uh, Nolan, 1 Corinthians 3.16, since Amen. I stole from you. Through 17. John 14.12, verse 13. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than me, these. Now, that's where we usually center our focus around. He will do even greater things than these. But look at the, le- the last part of the sentence. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. How did Jesus go to the Father? He had to die as a bloody sacrifice on a bloody cross. Come on. Look, if we follow the Davidic king from the cave of Adullam to the palace, he will enable us to do what he did. Not only enable us to do what he did, he will enable us through his death, through the sacrifice that's already been done, to do even greater things than he he did. His sacrifice enables us to do greater things. Come on, any of you watch the Passion of the Christ and you you no longer struggle with giving up your life? You're like, man, I want to do it. I want to do it. 
because I see my king doing it? That ought to engender a response inside of you that says, if he paid all for me, there is nothing that is too much for me to give to him. That's what these men did. They saw what their king gave, and they gave more. Yeah, I got Colossians 1 24. Now, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Oh, Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. It's a done deal, man. I'm on my way. Or, hey, I'm reading my Bible. I'm still attending church. I'm being an active member of the body of Christ. Now, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. You want to see someone saved? You want to see a church built up? You want to see your brother strengthened? It shows up in what you rejoice in suffering for them. Amen. Paul boldly declares that something was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Something is wrong with our thinking. We think about it as if he had just accomplished all the work on the cross, when in reality he initiated a process and he purchased you as a son soldier so that you might take it even further. You want to see this world change? It shows up in how you fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Something is lacking in Christ's afflictions in Cody Stevens' life. Something is lacking in Mario Clement's life in Christ's afflictions. We cannot go to see him without filling that up. It shows up primarily in what we sacrifice to see his temple and earth built. Hey, by the way, what is the body? For the sake of his body, which is the church. Saints, we are that temple of God. We are on a building project. We are in warfare. And we are the bride being prepared. And there is a sacrifice that we must pay. And there is no such thing as you going to meet Jesus without you having filled up what he did at the very least, if not more. You know, Judah, I still don't think they're getting it. So we're going to have to read 1 Corinthians 3.16 to fully understand what Paul's saying. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Look, Paul says... That he desires to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the body. What does 1 Corinthians say the body is? It says in Colossians that the body is the church. But what is he speaking to the church calling them? The temple. temple. So could it be that Paul's saying, I desire to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the temple? I see the suffering that my Savior made for the temple that will be built, and I desire to fill up what is lacking so that I can build that temple. Hold on, Justin. Are you saying that there's a son of David that paid a cost for a temple to be built, but it wasn't enough? Someone else had to follow in his footsteps? You mean to say that those leaders saw David's personal sacrifice and said, I desire to fill up what is lacking in that sacrifice to help build the temple? Look, if we have the mentality that Jesus paid it all, if 2,000 years of Christianity had the mentality that Jesus paid it all, none of you would believe in the gospel. There are people out there, there are islands, there are distant people that have never heard of the cross. They've never seen it. They've never heard of the blood that was shed for them. But you know what they will see? They will see you suffering to give the gospel to them. 
They will see you filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And that is how we build the temple. You know how that starts? It starts with your neighbors. It's not just you having a pleasant conversation and you telling them about how amazing your church service was. It was about them seeing in you Christ's afflictions being filled up. This is primarily for us right now. How you respond to death, how you respond to the things God has placed in front of us, you just having a chipper eh, smile is not nearly sufficient. We are to act like the Apostle Paul in the same image of our Davidic son. Yeah, we say things like DCD, don't care a damn except for the king's glory. We say things like less talk, more walk. We say things like few in number and one in purpose. But in all reality, that comes from we all know the sacrifice that has been paid for us. We all know the sacrifice that the Davidic son made for us. And we ought to take that and be willing to sacrifice more than he did. And the truth is, is that you don't have to do that. You get to do it. You get to do it. That's one of the things I love about my brother Daniel is he got to sacrifice for the king of kings. He got to do it. And his entire life was filled with supernatural offerings for the king. That is waking up and coming to church should not be an issue. Showing up on time should not be an issue to church and worship. Actually sitting there without going to the bathroom while the pastors are sharing the life-giving word that you have should not be an issue. We should be wanting to do more than what our king did. And he laid down his life for you. You were obviously going off for notes, and I'm totally okay with that. Somebody say, Adulam. Adulam. To the grave. When you see the word holiness or die trying, that's what you should think of. When you see few in number but one in purpose, that's what you should think of. When you see I want to win, you should think of the men that are in a cave desperate and in debt but are going with the king to the grave. Linton, pick up in verse 9 for us. Man, I love this passage. The people rejoice at the willing response of the leaders. So it was the leaders that matched Jesus' sacrifice and raised it. And the, the people rejoiced at that. But when that happens, David the king also rejoices greatly. You know, whenever you match Jesus' sacrifice, whenever you add to Jesus' sacrifice, he likes that. He rejoices over it. Oh, yeah. In fact, cross, brother. we see the same thing in Acts 2, 44 through 47. Yeah. It says all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, yeah. praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Come on. Look, this is after the sacrifice of the Davidic son. This is Acts 2. This is after Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. After they saw that willing personal sacrifice of the Davidic son, it resulted in wholehearted devotion and willing sacrifice that the community of the believers did. And that is what the community of real believers do. All right, Acts class students, you remember the word hermeneutics? You see how something's consistently used in the word? We're beginning to notice that the gospel writers exchange the word ecclesia, church, for temple, as well as body, as well as 
kohal, or group of believers. When you're reading about the temple from here on out, you need to firmly grasp in your mind, it's not just a shadow and a type, that the body that saw Christ die and was filled with his very spirit, they began to live like they were the temple of the living God. Come on. How close do you feel the person on your left or right? Could you take or leave some of them? Well, if you've got a wall that is holding up a temple, it's no easy thing to remove a cinder block. Anybody ever played Jenga? Don't play Jenga with the church of the living God. Learn to strengthen your brothers. Look, they were all filled with joy at their God-given ability to give. Come on. When God gives you the ability to give, anybody ever make a sacrifice in this room? <laughs> yes. Like yes. a sacrifice that nobody else knew about? Amen. That you knew about? Yes. You knew God was wanting you to make that sacrifice and you did it? Amen. Did you have more joy after you did it or less joy? More. You see, when you, when you see the sacrifice of the king... And then you have the opportunity to sacrifice for him. It always results in joy. Oh, yeah. Sometimes if you're struggling for joy, look for an area to sacrifice to the Lord. And you will have more joy, I promise. That's a good word. Amen. Verse 10, Linton. That's a really good David word. praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Mm. Look. We just have to stop and comment on this. I think normally this wouldn't have stuck out to us, but it did this time. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. You know, it's interesting to note that God is Israel's God forever. And I'm not just talking about the nation, although that is entirely true. He is their God forever. I am talking about the man, Israel. God is the God of Isaac or Israel I'm sorry, Jacob or Israel forever. Now, where is Jacob? I have seen his sarcophagus. He's sitting in a tomb in the West Bank area surrounded by Muslims. But you know who his God still is? Our God. You know, Matthew 22, verse 31 and 32 says, but about the resurrection of the dead. Man, what a pertinent topic. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. In response to a question about the resurrection of the dead, Jesus responds with God himself saying that he is the God of these men after they have died. Saints, this is the original hope. Nothing has changed. This would mean that they are not, in fact, dead, but still living, and he is with them as their God. See, we're not just in some kind of cloud bank in the sky. God is still their sovereign. You can't have a sovereign unless you're physically, in some tangible form, submitting. This is an order that is in the heavens that Jesus will complete. Hey, what's Romans 2 say? I want to read to you Romans 2, 7 through 8. Listen closely. To those who by persistence and doing good, everybody say doing good. Doing good. Seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. That is God's reward for you doing good, seeking glory, honor, and immortality. He promises he will give eternal life. Come on. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Look, it's simple. For those that are righteous, he grants them to live forever because he loves them. 
He loves them because they are seeking to do what God does. He loves them because they are seeking the things God loves. And in return, he gives those he loves eternal life. Come on. That means that God is willing to spend an eternity with this man because he was seeking the things that God loves. Those who do evil, he does not allow to live because he doesn't want to live with them for eternity. They experience the second death because he doesn't want to be around them. If you do good, if you seek glory in this room, God loves you and he wants to be with you. Now, in that thought, let's read our next passage. I'm going to read it, and Justin's going to comment on it. This comes from Psalm 116. I'm going to read 12 through 15. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? Man, what a question. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Man, that's such a good scripture, isn't it? Yeah. Precious in the death. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Look, the greatest gift a man can give to the Lord is a life of sacrifice to him. Yeah. We've already established he doesn't need anything from you. <laughs> but when he watches you sacrifice everything for him, man, he loves that. Because it's something you get to do even though it hurts. Amen. The Lord loves these men so much that their death is precious to him. Well, why is that? Why is it precious to the Lord when a righteous saint dies? Well, I have a suspicion that our death is precious because it is the moment that he gets to be with his beloved saint face to face. See, we th- I know it's true that it's precious to the Lord because it's something that we're offering in the last moments of our life. But I also think it's precious to the Lord because it is the moment that he finally gets to be with you. That is why it is precious when you die. Now, you've got to think about this for a second. All the time when we come to, to worship, you pouring out your hearts. Come on, answer that. Do you pour out your hearts in worship? Yes. Do you pray when you're driving and pour out your heart to the Lord? Yes. You've got to imagine God's perspective on that. Imagine him as a good father watching Assad cry out to him. And Assad is saying, Lord, I just want to see your face. Lord, I just want to be with you. Lord, I just want to feel your presence. Now, how do you think God feels hearing that prayer? How do you think a father feels hearing his son say, I just want to see your face, Dad. I just want to be with you. You think God's just like, yeah, I'll deal with you later. I got ten other things. I got other churches and stuff. Or do you think he's looking at his son and saying, I want to be with you too. I want to be with you face to face. That is why it is precious in the sight of the Lord, your death. Because it is the moment where he finally gets to say, Hey, now I'm face to face with you. I've been longing to see you too. I've been longing to be with you. And now we cannot be separated because you have eternal life with me. That is why it is precious to the Lord. He will be proud. God will be proud when his righteous saints die to be called their God forever. Come on. I saw Carlos wearing a shirt yesterday that said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Daniel. I want to tell you that Daniel's death was precious in the sight of the Lord because it was the time where he said, I want to be with Daniel. And now Daniel is with him forever. We ought to praise God for that. Are you thankful for God and his loving kindness towards you? 
we ought to spring up tonight in thankfulness that he gives us the opportunity to die every day for him. Saints, we're growing in our awareness of the real gospel. It's just the truth. We're all doing it together. I'm growing on a weekly basis in it. But we look at the wrath of God and we ignore it and pretend like it doesn't apply to you because we one time had an experience with the Lord. And then we look at a loving father and in our own mind and practice because it shows up in our relationship, we treat him as if he's some kind of distant deity. Exactly what we've been preaching about that is the contrary, the anti, the pseudo to our God. That group of archons that have held dominion over the earth. Saints, he is altogether loving and he's altogether strong. His strength is not just to protect you. It is also for his wrath. But there is nothing about our God that is somehow budget neutral. He intensely loves his sons that long for him. Yep. And he intensely hates your, the enemies of his sons that persecute them. He intensely hates those who hate him. And he intensely loves his saints as they die. We need to get rid of this kind of strange modern theology that is we're going to be balanced parents. We're going to be balanced husbands. We're going to be balanced this, that, or the other. Saints, our God is not balanced. He is a being of intense emotions. And I guarantee you, he intensely loves J.J. Moloch. Listen, you need to not forget that easily. And you also need to remember... There is a reason Jesus tells you to pray for your enemies. <laughs> Our God is a God of intensity. Yeah. On that note, will you read uh, verse 11 for us, Brother Linton? Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. Yeah, it is. Everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Saints, listen, we're going to pick up pace. I want to take just a moment. Let's pray together. You pray in your seats, but pray with me. This is something that makes it into songs. It's made it into church liturgy. And I bet when you were taught it out of the gospel, you had no idea where it came from. In context of the Davidic king, I want you to pray with me. Holy One, yours, O oh Lord, yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Our mighty king is head over all. We're going to recognize that in our emotions tonight. We're going to recognize that in our actions tonight. Whether it's a being in the heavens that is rebellious or it's a dog on the earth, he is sovereign over all. His power is alive inside of his sons that believe. Matthew 6, 19, or Matthew 6, 9 to 13. Somebody with an NIV, will you read that for me? Okay. Matthew 6, 9 what? 13. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You read that in the 1984 NIV, is that correct? There is a debate that scholars have had for thousands of years. It has to do with two different manuscripts. One that they believe to be a little older than the other one. 
But honestly, the discussion is irrelevant. They're debating whether or not the following words are in this prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You've heard it in your songs. Those of you with older translations will likely have seen that in the text. Saints, we're at best monkeys that are staring at professionals' work trying to figure out what it actually means. But can the Spirit of God in you not testify as you are praying with me out of David's prayer that the kingdom is his? Saints, I want to tell you, regardless of whether or not it's in this specific verse, and I'm inclined to think that it is, David prayed this, Jesus' father. He was referred to again and again as the son of David because he would embody him. And the prayer that he prays is about the coming Davidic kingdom upon Israel, where God is the only God. There is one king reigning over all, and every enemy is put underfoot. I bet you your Sunday school teacher didn't tell you about every enemy being crushed in that moment that is surrounding you. But every Jewish child that heard that thought about David praying the exact same thing. Some see the passage as Jesus, the son, teaching us how to pray. Our understanding is that it is a son teaching other sons, other brothers, men that he called friends, how to pray like his father had already taught him. See, Jesus learned, he grew in stature and wisdom, and he accomplished the work for which he was sent to fulfill every promise that was made to his father, David. Brother Linton, let's pick up and just read verse 12. We have some fun stuff coming up about that king. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Come on. Thanks. We want to throw a slide up for you real quick. This is a small note. doesn't really relate to everything we want to cover tonight, but I want you to know the things we've been teaching are not just a select area of the Bible and a cool sermon series. This is out of the Alex X, and it's a translation of it. From you are the riches and the glory. You rule all, O Lord, of all sovereignty, and in your hand is strength, and dominion, and in your hand to magnify and to strengthen all. Guess what the word for ruler is? Our God. He is declared as the one who is sovereign both of heaven and earth, every power above and below our king in the prayer that Jesus is asking for, that he's crying out, that he's teaching his disciples to pray, is about this kind of kingdom being ushered into the earth. Amen. You remember the concept of stringing pearls where they quote one part of a passage but they know the entire context because they grew up with it? When Jesus prayed that prayer, he was praying for the Davidic kingdom to be ushered in on the earth. Come on, man. And you know who he does it through? His sons. Hey, look, in David's prayer, the LXX has David recognizing Yahweh Sabaoth as the archon over all. Rightly recognizing that he is the archon over all means that everything that we have comes directly from Him. If He is the Supreme Archon, then everything we have comes from Him. Everything that we possess comes from His hand. Our material possessions, our children, our jobs, our great revelations that we like to share. It all comes from Him. Look, we want to say that there is nobody on the planet who is set apart based on what they 
have. Come on. If he is the chief archon over all, it all comes from him anyway. Amen. What do you have that elevates us apart from another? Hey, Justin, I've borrowed more things than you borrowed. (laughs) Hey, I'm in more debt than you are. (laughs) Maybe not. There is nobody on the planet who is set apart, but I'm going to share that debt with you. There's nobody on the planet who is set apart based on what they have. We can only be exalted by recognizing who he is, the chief archon. Think about it. We already, we already stressed that he doesn't need anything from you. Now we see that he gives us everything that we have. He doesn't need anything from us, yet he gives you everything so that you can have it and give it back to him. That ought to change the way we view sacrifices here tonight. If you're giving back something that belongs to him, then it really shouldn't be a sacrifice, is it? And I don't just mean money. I mean, if God gave you a wife and one day you have to sacrifice, it came from him anyway. God gave you children and one day you have to see those sacrificed to the Lord. Well, he gave it to you anyway. I want to tell you, there's a man named Adoniram Judson. Anybody ever hear of him? He was a Baptist missionary in the 1800s. He was a Baptist missionary and he went to Burma. Burma is the place on the movie Rambo where they're blowing people up and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. He went there in the 1800s without a cell phone. He went there without the internet, without Facebook, without being able to get wire transfers from his missionary sending team. He went there and he lost his wife on the mission field. He buried her. He lost several children on the mission field. He buried them. He got married again to another woman and she died on the mission field. And he buried her. After, towards the end of his life, they came and asked him, and they asked, Adoniram Judson, tell us about your service on the field. Tell us about all the great sacrifices you had to give for the Lord. And you know what his response was? I never sacrificed a thing. I didn't didn't make one sacrifice because this life was given to me by Jesus Christ, and everything I have is his anyway. I simply gave him back what was his, and I built his kingdom. Now, that was a Baptist. This is LCM. I know we can do better than that, can't we? Hey, Judah, why don't you read Luke 17, verse 7 through 10. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may go and eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told? So you, you LCM, also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. We are servants and we get to serve. The things that the king has given us are for his purposes. Whether that's our families, whether it's our finances, it's our time, It's even our spirit, soul, and body. He will not beg you for what he has already given you the ability to do. To protect your life is to steal your life. To protect your house is to steal it. There's no such thing as not giving it to him. It already belongs to him. You're misappropriating company finances when you do that. (laughs) Which is a criminal offense, by the way. I'm learning. Saints, those of you that are familiar with writings like John 14, other places in John, it's all over the place. He loved to write about it. He made you a son. He made you a friend. 
If you actually had a good father, you know very much so what it is to work like a slave. When you come home from the day, you're not getting paid. You're not being thanked for doing what the household was called to do. That's for the hired workers. That is for those that are not a part of the house. You don't negotiate labor rates with your son. He's your son, so of course he's going to do it. If you didn't grow up that way, I'm sorry. It's probably your problem in your workplace right now. (laughs) Your daddy paid you when you cleaned out the garage. Great. He was teaching you how to be a hired hand, not a son in the house of God. Come on. Sons are servants. Sons are slaves. Remember the parable where it's about this one son that went off and it's really a parable about the heart of the father? What did he say to the older son? Everything I have is yours. That was in response to why didn't I get a calf? Why didn't I get a goat? Why didn't That's often how we sound at an altar. (laughs) Everything that he has is already yours. Your life should look like you work harder than the slaves that are around you. Why? Because the house belongs to you. The entire temple is your possession and you will be glorified alongside him. A slave works till he dies and there is nothing more. A son works so that he might inherit eternal life. If your service does not outpace that of a slave to Jesus Christ, you might need to question whether or not you actually are a son. You know, Judah, I've seen those slaves on the job site and when they break something and the father says, I didn't didn't see it. But when a son gets in that situation, he fixes it. He tells the truth because he wants to see his father's business advance. That's what a real son is like. Brother Linton, you're going to have to rescue us. Read 13 and 14. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Look, you are the chief archon. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Look, who are we to participate in the kingdom? Look around. <laughs> Who are we to get to do this yeah. together? Yeah. Who are we to get to offer the king anything? <laughs> Who are we to have a precious death in his sight? But he allows us. All of us were like sheep that went astray. But he brought us back. Yeah. He brought us back and cleaned us up and gave us an opportunity to be in the pen. Tonight we need to be filled with thankfulness right now. Amen. Feel like your life is not going the way it should go? Well, Where would your life be now if he didn't take you and clean you up? You feel like your life is not going anywhere? Well, look what he's given you the opportunity to do in the next day, the next week, and the next year for him. Come on, we need to find an opportunity to sacrifice for the Lord. We need to find an opportunity to look and be thankful for what he has allowed us to do. Instead of looking and being spiteful over what he hasn't given us yet. He's given us so many opportunities, and I hope to lay down my life for him. I hope to seal the deal with my blood so that all the world knows that I was willing, that I love my king enough, and that he gave me the opportunity to go out well. Amen? Listen, we're about to read verse 15, but I want to tell you tomorrow is going to be a good day. Amen? Amen. I don't care what you're staring at or what is awaiting you. It's going to be a good day because he gave you something you can give to him. He entrusted something in you. He considered you worthy of receiving the kingdom of God and having something to give to him. No more dreading. No more dreading tomorrow. No more fear about the future. 
We're going to live like the bold, confident sons, servants, and soldiers of Jesus Christ that we are called to be. Amen. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. (laughs) All right. Listen, we don't have to comment long on this. Again, we're speaking to Israel, and the Davidic king is speaking. And he says, we, we are aliens and strangers in your sight. Not previously, not back before Abraham. Currently, in your sight, we are nothing more than aliens and strangers. And this is in reference to what he has chosen to do through them. What he has chosen to give them. How much more do we... Listen, we don't have to go through every first century homiletic for you to understand the concept of if that is true of them, how much more do you and I owe them? Saints, we're not preaching to you. We're preaching to us and you. We're preaching about the ideals of what we are called to be, what we are stating that we are to the world. And we all know good and well for hours of our lives we do not behave that way. The stakes are getting higher. It's time that we live like Christ has called us to. We must outperform our station. We must grow from being able to being capable to very capable. There is still something lacking in Christ's afflictions that has your name on it. Brother Linton, 16 and 17 for me. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. Willingly and with honest intent. The King of Kings gives willingly and with honest intent. How should you give? Willingly Willingly and with honest intent. Come on. No giving sparingly. No holding things back. If he gave willingly and honest, with honest intent and integrity, he expects you to do the same. Keep reading. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Look, David was full of joy because of he's, he, he laid down the pattern by giving willingly and with integrity. And he saw how the people responded and he was joyful. Man, ask the pastors in here if it fills them with joy whenever you give like they give. In fact, they, they give in hopes that you would see their example so that you can match it and go higher Amen. and give more. Amen. Look, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but... Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Your attitude should be the same as your Davidic king. You should look at how he gave, and you should be willing to give the same. Come on. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What does he expect for you tonight? Jesus rejoices when we do the same things that he did. When he gives everything, when he humbles himself, that's what makes him happy when you do the same. Hey, let's move forward and read verse 18 as we move along. O Lord, God of our fathers, fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. Now, that is quite a prayer, isn't it? Yes. Keep their hearts loyal to you. Anybody want the Lord helping you keep your heart loyal to him? Man, I know... I can't do it on my own. As much as I try to keep my heart loyal, there are other things that come and steal my loyalty. But if it were not for the grace of God in my life, I would have 
probably not be here. It is not just your strength keeping you here in these seats. It is not just your strength keeping you going. God keeps you as you fight the good fight. Look, I want to share a few scriptures on that quickly so that you can see this. We, you need to grasp this because oftentimes we get a little bit frustrated when we make a mistake. And I get it. I know we're aiming for perfection. I know we want to ascend heights in the kingdom. But honestly, it really doesn't depend on your performance. It depends on his strength and ability to keep you and keep you loyal. And I want to tell you that your God is big enough to do that. I used to hear a man, they used to come to this church and he said every day, hey, how you doing, brother? Oh, I'm struggling. Man, I just can't seem to get right. I heard that about four times and then I looked him in the face and I said, I don't think you believe in the same Jesus I believe. Because the Jesus I believe is able to make my heart right and keep me loyal. And because he does that, I do. I'm going to hand out a few passages. Brandon, you're going to get 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Assad, you're going to read John 17, 5 through 23. And then Paul, 15, you're gonna, 15 through 23. 15 through 23. Paul, you're going to read Jude, verse 24 through 25. Whatever you got it, Brandon. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Pause there, Brandon. Saints, you thought this was just about your giving. How many times have you heard this in a sermon about tithing? <laughs> yes, of course it is. That is the pashat. That is the most obvious thing you could possibly garner from it. You don't need a preacher to tell you about it. Those who sow into the temple of God sparingly will reap from the temple of God sparingly. Thank you. You want to have closer commitments? You want to be tighter with the brothers around you? You want to know the pastors better? Show a greater deal of devotion. You're not going to sit on the outside sowing sparingly and expecting that you're going to receive the same inheritance in the temple of God for eternity. The same moment the same breath that he says that, he lets you know that anything that you give generously, sacrificially, where it hurts to fellowship, where it hurts to be discipled, where it hurts to give, that you will reap a reward for that. That it will not be in vain. That your toil will result in a kind of eternity that is different than if you had not. Keep reading, brother. All right. I'm not going to comment much on this other than to say if he loves a cheerful giver, what does that mean about one who is reluctant? Meditate on that. (laughs) If you're going to show up and have the monographs and are intent on keeping them, then you keep them wherever you came from. I mean that. I, I, I really do. Joy is infectious. And a heart that does not want to participate in sacrifice is infectious. Go read Deuteronomy 20. Why did a priest send those back home who are longing to be somewhere else? Why does he send those home who are not ready to overcome their fear? See, those that are ready to give generously, ready to sacrifice generously, ready to give all, you have a strengthening effect upon us. And God himself says that he loves it. He loves it. Not just the deed, but he loves you, the cheerful giver. Amen. Read verse 8. Amen. 
having all that you need, Hallelujah. you will abound in every good work. Saints, again, we're going to remind ourselves, grace is power over sin. Grace is the ability to participate in the work project. Grace is the ability to offer something to God. He is able to make all grace abound in you. Saints, no more hiding when you've made a mistake, when you've blatantly sinned. No more retreating, no more giving up. You depend upon the grace of God that He will make abound in you that will cause you to rise to a higher height, that causes you to face sin, face inadequacy, face the difficulty of your situation, and rise beyond it like the Davidic son already has shown you to. We will add to his sacrifice that way because he is able to make us do it. Spencer and I both know we are not going to be able to surpass Christ's sacrifice on our own. But I do know a God whose grace is at work in Spencer in an increasing manner. Who is John 17? Well, now hold on a second. Jesus' prayer for you is that you not be taken out of the world, but protected while you're in it. Save me, Jesus! You're going to have to be in the world, but he will protect you. Who's he praying to? The Father. And you better believe the Father answers the Son's prayer. He will protect you from the evil one. Keep reading. Sounds like consecrate to me. He will consecrate you. He will sanctify you. He will carry the process of your discipleship until you are growing into increasing glory through increasing glory till the very end. He's able to do that for you. Keep reading. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. He sanctified himself by giving the highest price, right? Until it's your turn to sanctify yourself. Then you give the higher price. Keep going. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are one in me and I am in you. May they they also be in us. That the world may believe that you have sent me. Come on. I have given them the glory that you gave me. That they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sit and have loved them even as you have loved me. Hey, the, the good news about all of this is that he will do that for you if you're willing to continue. Yeah. If you're willing to fall flat on your face and get right back up, he will do everything that he just prayed to his father about and his father will do it for you. Mm-hmm. He will sanctify you. He will cause you to walk in unity with your brothers, He will cause it to happen. You should not have any fear in this room that somehow you're not going to make it, that somehow you're not going to be there. Because if you trust in Him, He will do that. I promise you, if He did it for me, He can do it for you. I've messed up pretty bad in the kingdom. I mean, royally bad. And yet, He was able to carry me through that and bring me where I am today. Hey, how did David's men unify with their king? They followed in the same sacrifice. And God enabled them to do so. How did the Apostle Paul unify with his king? And God enabled him to do so. 
You want to be unified with him? He'll give you something to sacrifice. Just be willing and ready to give it. Yeah. Jude, 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling. To him who is able to what? Keep you. Keep you. To him who is able to keep you. Even when you don't want to be kept. He can still keep you. He can still change your heart. He can still give you a new heart. Even though you don't feel like you can get a new heart. Even on your worst day, you could cry out to him, and he will keep you. To him who is able to keep you from what? Falling. Keep reading. And to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Man, he is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence. Man, there's no fear involved in that. I got this scripture because I was asking the same question about our brother Daniel. Lord, why? And he gave me this scripture because he's shown in the last five years of Daniel's life, he was keeping him from falling, and he was going to present him before his own glorious presence without fault and with great joy. If he is able to do that for Daniel, he's able to do that for you too. He is able to keep you from falling until the day where you are presented before his glorious presence. Man, that's good news, isn't it? I want to be in his glorious presence, but I know he's going to preserve my life until I get there. As we go to 19 and 20 of our chapter, married men, Think about your marriage language and what it is your job to do for your spouse, for your treasured possession. And Christ says he will do the exact same with you. Come on. What's required in a marriage covenant? That you're faithful, that you're willing, and that you're fighting for the love and obedience that you're called to. He is able to present you before himself as a spotless, radiant, Son of God. Amen. 19 and 20. And hey, we're about to get into some good things. And I promise you, you have not heard this before. So if you guys are not bored and you want to learn something that will impact the way you see the Davidic king, you're about to get something good. Amen. All right? 19 and 20. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build this palatial structure for which I have provided. Hey, pause on that for me real quick. This is not our larger point. There is nothing quite like a father praying for his son. You need to remember that when Christ is praying that you would stand, that you will succeed. My father is going to hear this recording in just a couple days when it gets to it. And I want him to hear that the times that he's laid his hands on me and prayed, that I might be able to stand, that I might be able to complete the palatial structure. There's nothing more powerful than what God has invested in you for your children. Amen. 20. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord, your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and the King. Amen. Now that, that is just an interesting verse right there. Yeah. They bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord and, and the King. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? It's about to get more interesting. I want to show you it in the Hebrew. It says they bowed down there and worshipped the Lord and the king. So it makes sense to fall prostrate before the king. Because as people of the king, if you don't do that, he might cut your head off. 
because he's a king and he deserves it. But not only did they bow down and prostrate themselves before the Lord, they worshiped the Lord and the king. Does that sound funny to anybody? It does. I mean, worshiping the Lord doesn't sound like a strange concept. But why in the world are they worshiping the king? Why in the world are they worshiping David here? You guys want to get into that? Yeah. Now listen. It's 9.14. Some of us are a little sleepy. We'll make sure we get this. They bowed down. Somebody say, and. And. Worshipped. Worshipped. Two separate things. And they did both in relation to the king and to the Lord. Now, we've all learned that we are to worship the Lord and him alone regardless. Doesn't matter who it is standing before us. If it's King Nebuchadnezzar, if it's King whoever, we do not bow down before men, right? And here they're presented as bowing down and worshiping a man. We do not bow down to any man. So why are they doing that? How is it that they worship the king? Well, I want to show you that there is a cognate in the Greek here, and it comes, it goes into the Newer Testament. And Peter, this is uh, Peter's example, and this actually affirms the point I'm trying to make. This is Acts 10, verse 23 through 26. It says, the next day Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Okay, that Greek word there is the exact same cognate that is used in the passage where it says they fell down and worshipped David the king. But look what happens here. Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. See, when they did that to Peter, Peter understood, hey, you're not supposed to do this. I am just a man. In this passage, the word in Greek that is used for fell at his feet is the cognate for what is happening in 1 Chronicles 29. Peter understood that no man should bow down before him. The issue in this passage is that Peter is just a mere man and should not accept any worship. Come on, is David a mere man? He is. So pause real quick. Acts 10. It's a translator's choice to say fell down in reverence. Clearly, Peter did not understand it. As reverence. He understood it to be something more than reverence. Which is why he's taking Cornelius. Remember who Cornelius is? Probably not a little guy. Making him stand. And saying to him, I am only a man. Do not do this. Peter is vehemently opposed to what he is doing here. Same word. Go check it out in the LXX. It's used in both areas. You know... It's kind of a problem that David, I mean, to me, when I'm first reading this, that David has people on their faces worshiping him. It kind of is a problem. But, you know, as I started thinking about it, I realized this is the same problem that was presented to Jesus. Many did not understand how they could see people coming and bowing before Jesus, worshiping him because he appeared to just be a man. All right. Now, wrap your mind around that. Of course, we know that Jesus was more than a man. But I want to show you where that concept came from. You want to see that? We want to take the time to show you some concepts about the Davidic king that are replete in the Tanakh. And before we get into this, I want you to know. Everyone, whenever they understood, they understood, I'm not going to say everyone, 
But when Jesus said things about him being equal to the Father, when he said things about, like, the Father and I are one, we understand that 2,000 years after the fact that he said it. But we are about to see why Jesus can say things like the Psalms wrote about me. You want to see those Psalms? Let's take a look at a couple of them. And I want to list these Psalms, and I want you to guess who these Psalms are speaking of, okay? So I'm going to list a couple Psalms, and then I'm going to say, who is this talking about? And you're going to respond with who you think it's talking about, okay? First, I want to show you a couple Psalms relating to the topic of who is the greatest king on the earth. First one that we have listed here is Psalm 83, 18. It says, let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the most high over all the earth. Who is that talking about? You can't answer Jesus. You're cheating. Is it God or is it David? Pick one. God. Okay. It's pretty easy. It says that you alone are the most high over all the earth. You are whose name is the Lord. All of us agree that God is the most high king over all the earth, right? Is, is God the most high king over all the earth? Yes. Well, read Psalm 89 verse 27. I will appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of all the earth. Who is that talking about? David. David. You got it right. That one's talking about David. You see here in these passages, there's something about the writers of the Psalms that they understood that the Davidic king was, in essence, equal to God on earth. That the Davidic king was led by God, that the Davidic king heard of God, and that the Davidic king was instituted by God. Therefore, he was God's king and agent on the earth. And there's something you got to get here from this. Where do we start understanding that the Davidic king would produce a divine Messiah? Well, you're about to see it. Let's go to our next slide. This is on the topic of all the nations bowing down. Hey, who are all the nations going to bow down before? Jesus. Or God? Well, look at Psalm 72, 11. It says, all kings bow down to him. All nations will serve him. If you want to do some research in, the, in, your, in your time at home, look at that word serve. It doesn't just mean like they're going to offer things. It means they are going to worship. They are going to give him worship. They are going to exalt him over all the earth. Bow can, down and serve. Remember can you guess who Psalm 72, 11 is writing about? I'm hearing God. I'm hearing Jesus. I'm hearing David. Well, read verse 1 of Psalm 72. It says, endow the king with glory. Who's it talking about? The Davidic king. Now look at Psalm 86.9. Look, endow the king with your justice. You had it. Oh God, the royal son with your righteousness. This is talking about the Davidic king, but it says all kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. Now look at Psalm 86. The exact same thing is spoken about God. All nations you have made will come down and worship before you, O Lord, and they will bring glory to your name. Are you starting to see that the Davidic king always is and always was a representative and not just a representative. He was always made to be like God. Are you starting to see that? All right. Y'all ready for the next one? Yeah. All right. You've been through Samuel with us. You should get this one. Psalm 18:44. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. Foreigners cringe before me. God or David? 
Psalm 211, serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing with trembling. There's an intentional mixing that you're going to constantly see where attributes are applied to the physical man, David, that would only other, in any other circumstance, be applied to God. Let's do and the next one. It's not just David, because some of these are spoken about the Davidic kings that came after David. Now, there were some pretty wicked Davidic kings, right? Yes, but the Davidic lineage was always destined for divinity. You, you hearing me? The Davidic lineage was always destined for divinity, and it was prophesied in the writings. Look at the next one. We have splendor and majesty. This is Psalm 21. Through the victories you gave his glorious great, you have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him eternal blessings. And made him glad with the joy of your presence. Who are we talking about? David or God? David. <laughs> Got it right. But look what Psalm 96.6 says. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. The same Hebrew words that are used about David, splendor and majesty, are the same Hebrew words used about God, splendor and majesty. Let's go to the next one. This is on the topic of praise. Psalm 45.17 says... I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Which is that talking about, David or God? David. Talking about David. Psalm 67 says that the nations will be glad and sing for joy. Verse 5, may the peoples praise you, O God, may all the peoples praise you. Same Hebrew word for praise. The same praise that belongs to God, they are attributing the same praise to the Davidic king. Are you seeing that? Mm -hmm. So far, we see the Davidic king being credited with the same exaltation, the same worship, the same fear, the same splendor and majesty, and the same praise that God is credited with receiving. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah. That is because the writers of the Psalms had no problem seeing the Davidic king as divine and as God. The writers of the Ketuvim saw the Davidic king as the earthly representation of God himself. The earthly Davidic king was not divine. He was not divine. David, his son Solomon, and the next Davidic king after him were not divine. But the Davidic lineage would eventually become divine. And all the previous kings foreshadowed it in the Psalms that are written about them. All right? I want you to, I want you to see Psalm 45, verse 1 through 7. This is written about the king. And in verse 1 it says... My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. king. So Psalm 45 is written to the Davidic king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men. men. And your lips have been anointed with grace. Since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously in behalf of truth. Humility and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. That's quite a good letter, isn't it? Yeah. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Who's going to do that? Well, the king is going to have his sharp arrows pierced. Yeah. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Your lo you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above. Do you see right there tucked in in verse 6 where it says, Your throne, O God? Yeah. 
This is the writer writing to the Davidic king, and he is calling the Davidic king. He says it over and over. This is to the king. And then in verse 6, he calls the Davidic king Yahweh. Are you seeing that? This is not a mistake. You should read some Jewish commentaries on this verse and how they're trying to wrap their minds around this because they see the writer calling the Davidic king Yahweh. This is because the Davidic king always was meant to be divine. Saints, we're not preaching Mormonism. We're not speaking and telling you that David, the physical man, was somehow ascended to being worshipped. Telling you just like those of you that understand the principle of the angel of the Lord, there's an intentional mixing all the way through that was supposed to prepare you for the son of David. I'm going to summarize a few scriptures for you as we keep going. Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Actually, I'll pick up an 8. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and I will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them in reference to Israel in captivity. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. Jeremiah understood what was written in the writings. John 5, 21, speaks about, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is about Jesus, the Davidic Son. Their lines are intrinsically linked, and it's why the opening of the Gospel presents him as the Son of David. It's why the book of Revelation closes with him as the Son of David. Now consider for a moment that we're reading Ezra's account, and it is the last book before we are introduced to Christ. And he wants you to know that as they were worshiping God, somehow they were worshiping a Davidic son that was the same as him. That was the same in Jeremiah. That was the same in the Psalms. It is almost as if the Holy Spirit led him to prepare the world for Christ. 1 Peter 1. I'm going to pick up in the 6th verse, 7th verse. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold. You remember what gold represents. It's a kind of divinity that we are warring for, that we are sacrificing for to build the temple of God on earth that is his body, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ, who is the son of David, is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You are receiving the goal of your faith. The salvation of your souls. It's implied and understood just like everywhere else in the Bible. That when your soul is saved we are waiting for a resurrected body for it to go somewhere. That hope is found in the son of David. The writings predicted it. The prophets predicted it. And Ezra wants you to understand it right here in Chronicles 29. Linton, will you pick up in verse 21 for me and read through 22? The next day they made sacrifices to the Lord and presented burnt offerings to him, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand male lambs, together with their drink offerings and other sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. They ate and drank with great joy in the presence of the Lord that day. Then 
they acknowledged, acknowledged Solomon, son of David, as king a second time. Wow. Anointing him before the Lord to be ruler and Zadok to be priest. Now what did they do? They ate and drank with great joy in the presence of the Lord. That's interesting because you see that in so many other passages, right? On this momentous occasion, after all that has happened thus far, the people celebrate by eating and drinking. Look, you may like to eat and drink a lot, but this phrase was usually intended for very special events in Israel. (laughs) During this, they anoint Solomon a second time. Did did anybody catch that? And why did they have to anoint Solomon a king a second time? Well, if you remember the first time they anointed him king, it was during Adonijah's insurrection, and it had to be done quickly. Adonijah was threatening to take the throne. Sin was threatening to reign on the throne, and they had to quickly anoint him a first time. This time he was anointed after David had completed all his work. This is the second time. We're going to explain further, but if you have an eye to see, you are probably seeing two comings in this passage. We want to look at a few passages quickly on this subject, and we're going to hand them out. You read quick as you can. We're going to summarize this concept for you. Uh, So, Hayes, read Exodus 24, 9 through 11. Uh, Nolan, Isaiah 25, 6. Rob, you get 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9. See some hands. Nick Rosales, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 27. Bonnie, loud and clear, read James 1, 16 through 18. Jackie, you're going to read Revelation 21, 6 through 7. And uh, JJ, you're going to get Revelation 22, 12 through 16. Exodus 24, 9, 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. So we've already seen in the writings that they ate and drank in the presence of the Davidic king. In the law, you see that at the inauguration of Israel, whenever they are receiving the promise, whenever they are hearing about a prophet like Moses who had come after him, what are they doing? They're eating and drinking, and the presence of God showed up. This was the inauguration of the promise of the Davidic son. Who's got Isaiah 25, 6? On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, and the best of meats and the finest of wines. Oh, give me an amen, man. Where are you at? Oh, no, you left us. It's on recording now, brothers. Hey, no amen for aged wine and meats? <laughs> Aged wine and meat is how God likes to celebrate when he's completed a promise that he made and fulfilled it. It's signifying that something that has been in the works for quite some time is now reaching a point of culmination. And it's at a place where we've had Jesus come once. We had him return and stomp out the earth and the king of peace has risen. You might even begin to build a picture out of 1 Chronicles 29 of what that day will look like. Who's got 1 Peter 1? We're going to read 7 through 9. These have come so that your faith, a greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Hey, even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? Because you know you're going to yeah. eat and drink with him oh, when he yeah. comes back. Yeah. yeah. Look, Jesus came a first time as a Davidic warrior, and he is still making war right now through us. Jesus will return as the Solomonic king of peace. And you know what? To really throw a wrench into this, we see Solomon anointed twice. This is where we see the two entities merge. As prophecy always repeats itself in patterns, we are seeing the same thing, two two comings repeating itself in a cyclical pattern. Let's continue to see this progression in 1 Corinthians 15. Get it. Hallelujah. Who's got it? 15, 23. To each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, after he destroys all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Mm, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Yeah. 27, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that it does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. I want you to think about this for just a moment in the shadow and type that we have here. David and Solomon have an overlap. Solomon is anointed king and David is still king. Solomon is king over all Israel when his father anointed him and yet his father is still king and he submitted to him. When everything is put underfoot, everything is made all in all, and we have one king left that embodies both. James 1, 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits. Look, we who stand now and recognize him now, those of us who are with him in the cave of Adullam stage, those of us who are with him standing eagerly expecting him to come a second time, those of us who love him even though we've never seen him, we are the first fruits. We are, he is a first fruit and we are coming after him. And the same process that he is anointed king a full and final second time, we will also be anointed kings with him. Amen? Amen. Got Revelation 21, 6 through 8. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Pause. Somebody say, Adulam. To the grave. To the grave. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning to the end. Keep reading. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Saints, the end result of following him from Adullam to the grave, from the beginning to the end, is that you will become like him, like the stars. You will become a son inside of his house, and you're going to drink some heavenly water, and there will also be meat present at that time. Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, I love the fact that he says, Behold, I am coming soon. Yes, amen. Hey, he is still coming soon, church. Yeah, 
It's like sometimes I can hear Jesus saying, hey, have you become a king without me? Have you become kings without us? Surely not, because I would be a king with you. Look, he's coming soon, and we will know because we will be eating and feasting with him, being kings like he is. What's verse 14? Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they might have the right to the tree of life, and they go through the gates into the city. Mm. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, and the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices also. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright morning star. Look, when he comes back a second time, that is his testimony. That he is the offspring of David. That the full Solomonic reign is here. He is the Davidic king always intended for you. When you see the Davidic king, you are seeing God. When he comes a second time, he will be all in all. And you will reign with him and eat and feast with him. That is what we are looking forward to. That is what we are fighting for in this body. Who's got verse 23 and we're going to finish out? No. 23 and... Yeah, 23 to 25. So Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of his father David. He prospered and all Israel obeyed him. All the officers and mighty men, as well as all of David's of King David's sons, pledged their submission to King Solomon. I love that. The Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal splendor, such as no king over Israel had ever had before. Listen to this. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name... Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. This is Philippians 2, 9 through 11. The son of David gave us the right to be called his son, which makes you part of the house of David when you follow him, when you walk after him. We are going to take on the character of David now in this life. In heaven and on earth, we are going to subdue powers. And we are going to recognize him as king and know for certain every knee will bow. For now, I'll settle for proclaiming it and acting like it. But it is coming and it is coming soon. 26 and 28, brother. David, son of Jesse, was king over all Israel. He ruled over over Israel 40 years, 7 in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. His son Solomon succeeded him as king. Now I'm going to keep this brief, but this is a beautiful passage. This is David's life right here. David is dying. David is going to die. Out of all the study that we've, we've gone through, this is the point where David dies and Solomon's about to take his place. But at the end of his life, what Chronicles records is that he died at a good old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth and honor, and his son succeeded him as king. What's not mentioned here is all of David's faults. What's not mentioned here is all the things that David failed at. Yes, praise the Lord. What is mentioned here is that he enjoyed long life. Hey, if you die at a young age, you still enjoy the long life God gave you. He enjoyed wealth and honor. Man, if you live a life worthy for the king, you will enjoy the wealth and honor of a king. Amen. And all of your faults will be erased and thrown into the abyss where they belong. Amen. Look, David's life was summed up. His faults were redacted. This is Jude 124. He's able to present David, and he's able to present you without fault and stumbling. Let's read verse 29, and we are going to finish out the chapter. 29 to 30. 
As for the events of King David's reign from beginning to end, they are written in the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer, together with the details of his reign and power, and the circumstances that surrounded him and Israel, and the kingdoms of all the other lands. Saints, I want you to consider that Ezra wrote this, and what he wanted you to know about the ending of David's life was that he had redeemed him, he had made him stand, and that he was holy. This is preparation for Christ. You can even see here where Ezra is drawing much of his writings from, from other men like Samuel, like Gad, like Nathan. He worked in conjunction with prophets, and he was a priest and a scribe. He worked through the details and asked the Holy Spirit to show him how to present to his people the hope that God had for them. Our hope this evening is that you will understand God's hope for you. That you'll know how to walk in it, how to live in it, how to believe it. There is nothing that we have in our hands that did not come from Him. There is no sacrifice that is too great because He gave it to you. He is the only one that is making us stand. I know Chris and I have been standing by His grace today. You have His grace upon you, in you. It's time that we put what He gave us to work. It's time that we take the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and those that are around us and put it to good use. They didn't just consecrate themselves in our understanding of it. When they were consecrated, they went and acted. In Acts 2, when they heard the preaching, they asked, what must we do? In John 17, when he wanted to sanctify them, there was things that they must do. Who is it that you're called to fill up Christ's sufferings for? Who is it that tomorrow you can make an impact for the kingdom of God where the Eddie's already given you? It would be a great day. It would be an amazing day. It would be a stellar day because you participated with Jesus Christ if you put it to work tomorrow. Amen. We're called to greater things. Rising in the sacrifice that we give, we are going to expand who we are and become more like that son of David. Yeah. Does anybody else want to be like that yeah. son of yeah. David? Yeah. Hey, let's stand as we get ready for our closing. As you stand, I want to read to you 1 Peter 2, 4-6. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Look, we are building something here. We are building a temple You know who can't see that? Your neighbors, your co-workers. You are giving your life for something that really no one else can see but you and the men around you. You are giving your life for a temple that no one sees right now. You are giving your life for something that's going to take faith for you to sacrifice. You might sacrifice till the day that you die not seeing that temple fully built. But I promise you, we will all see it together. We have to have the faith to say, I do not see it right now. I do not see my promises. I do not see that temple fully being built. I don't see the construction project started. I don't see the materials going together, but I'm going to sacrifice for it right now. Because I know it will be built. Look, nobody can see that in our lives. Honestly, we are like treasures hidden in jars of clay. 
One day that that jar of clay is going to be ripped apart and that treasure inside will be revealed to the entire world. That treasure is dependent on the sacrifice that you put in when nobody's watching. Saints, there are certain things that we just can't accomplish at an altar that you're going to have to do daily. You're going to have to do moment by moment. You have to learn to do it like the leaders that are before you do. Like the men in the cave of Abdullam, if you're feeling like you're running out of rope, you're distressed, troubled, in debt, we want to pray with you and ask the grace of God to fill us. The power to live differently, to feel differently, to act differently. That our emotions, our bodies, and our deeds might line up with the works of Christ in this moment. And that it might be a little training practice. That in a single prayer, in three minutes, you learn to put yourself in right order with God and go back to sacrifice until you reach the temple. And that tomorrow, that tonight, in the morning, any time that you are out of alignment, you're constantly resetting yourself to the sacrifice of Christ that you were called to. We invite you, not just to pray a prayer with us, not like you're praying over food, but for you to call out to the Almighty God to strengthen you as we know that He can. He will make you stand in this house. It's time that we find the strength of the Davidic warriors that we were already born into, and we live like them. This is our day. This is our time. Missionaries have gone before us. Pastors have gone before us. But it's our time to fill up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. Raise your hands with us as we pray together. Mighty God, we desire to build what we can't see. Lord, we desire to do the things that you did. Lord, we love the men who have gone before us because they gave towards something that they couldn't see. They lived their lives in faith. Lord, we want to build. We want to pick up where they left off. Lord, we want to do what we see our leaders doing. Lord, we we catch a glimpse of the temple now, but Lord, we want to sacrifice for it every day of our life. Lord, we're asking that you give us faith. Lord, that you help us. Lord, that you strengthen these hands yes, to go to work. Thanks, the Holy One. Lord, honestly, we can't see it like we need to. But Lord, we want to go to work like we have the full plans. Lord, we want to go to work knowing that when we put our hands to the task, you are going to strengthen them. Mighty God, would you cause faith and courage to rise in this world? Yes, Father, let it rise. Lord, that each man and woman, each child would leave here with courage, knowing that what they're doing is building your temple. Hallelujah. Lord, even though we don't feel like it sometimes, Lord, I pray that mountains would be lowered and valleys would be raised up in our lives. Lord, I pray for level pathway for us to walk on so that we can build what you're calling us to build. Lord, we say, fear be damned in the name of Jesus. Fear be damned in the name of Jesus. We say, courage, rise. Lord, we want to give everything we have, our last breath, into investing in your temple. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name, and we are going to see it rise. We are going to see it rise in this body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, I want to encourage you with something real quick. Uh, you ever need just a pick-me-up sometimes? Yeah. 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 That's why Starbucks is still in existence. <laughs> you go through the drive-thru to get you some pick-me-up. I want to help you guys. 
I can feel an overwhelming wet blanket trying to settle in. We shake it off, and then it begins to settle back in. So the variants of being tired, being emotionally drained, being mentally drained, or maybe all of the above. Start with your hands. Now what we do here corporately, we lift up our hands. And imagine that there is a string attached to each one of your thumbs and to the corners of your mouth. And as you lift up your hands, what's going to happen to your face? Smile. A big old smile. A smile that is radiant. We have to force ourselves to be joyful when we don't feel like it. Especially when we're tired and everything else is going on. Uh, Olivia, put Romans 15, verse 13, on the screen. The guys gave you a fantastic word. Yeah. It's stirring up things inside of me that's going to feed us all. This is one that came to mind that stood out. May the God of hope, hope. partial hope, no. situational hope. Oh. It's hope from the heavens that is eternal and endures in all circumstances. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. So whenever you're raising your hands and those spiritual connectors are raising the corners of your mouth and he is filling you with all joy because you are acting in all willingness and obedience. Then look what comes next. And peace as you trust in him so that you may sit at home and enjoy it just for yourself. No. No. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yesterday was a huge shot in the arm. I mean, it was a moment of celebration. We loved it. We enjoyed it. And here comes Monday. Monday sucks. And you know what? We still need that same attitude today that we had yesterday. I mean, a triumphant, infectious joy that is aimed at the very content that these men brought so well tonight. You got work to do. Ibrahim, you got work to do. I'm not talking about selling houses like a boss. I mean, your hands have things to build today and tomorrow. And build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Every single one of you in here, you should have a now clearer and sober judgment about your task and what you got to do. If you don't, talk to us. We'll help We'll help clarify what that is. But I want you to wake up tomorrow morning, force your feet on the floor, get your rear end out of bed when you know you should. Amen. Get your facing God's word. Pour your heart out in prayer. Lift up your hands, which will raise the corner of your mouth, and go do the work that God ordained for you to do tomorrow. Yeah. Amen. Do it with hope. Amen. Do it with joy. Do it as you're filled with His shalom, and do it in a way that is bringing inspiration to everybody around you. Yeah. Most of you in this room have your mezuzahs. You know at least where to start. But you wouldn't think that could console your heart and mind is go change the one life that's in front of you. Amen. This has been a motto and a staple of this church because we can be overwhelmed by the numerous tasks of what the kingdom of God does. But one thing you can do about right now is the one life that's in front of you.
We'll change one life at a time. Amen. With a big smile. Look, let's practice. Amen. Yes. Smile. Hallelujah.